the National Archives podcast series, Apprenticeship Records for Family Historians, presented by Mark Pearsall. Talk today is about apprenticeship records um, and the registers that we hold in the National Archives and the few other uh, records that we hold relating to apprenticeship and um, suggestions for other sources in county record offices that you can use to trace apprenticeships. So to start off, a definition of apprenticeship, basically learning a trade, a craft or a profession by serving a fixed period of time working to a, and being taught by a master of that trade. Um, regulated in the Middle Ages by trade and craft guilds and by legislation and by statute law. Um, the basic system um, of employment in a, a trade or a craft was that you would start out as an apprentice. Um, it varied the age at which you would be apprentice depending on the trade or craft that you were learning and the period of, of apprenticeship would vary. Um, on average, it was about three or four years, um, but some apprenticeships could last as long as seven years. And you would learn the trade and become qualified in that occupation. Um, and then you would become a journeyman, basically. Um, that is somebody that is qualified but doesn't have apprenticeships, apprentices of their, their own, um, who isn't a master um, and is not an employer of people, but an employee who travels round seeking employment from other masters. Um, journey coming from the French jour for day, basically a day man, a man for hire by a master, by an employer. Um, but in time, he would gain the experience and the, um, the income in which to set himself up as a, as a master and go into business for himself, and then he in his turn would take on new apprentices to train up in that trade or profession. Now the main piece of legislation um, is the 1563 Statute of Artificers and Apprentices which required anyone practicing a craft or trade to have served an apprenticeship to a master and there were a whole series of trades that were regulated by this statute. Um, in the course of time, there were later amendments to the legislation and at the end of the 18th century, a number of court cases had established the principle that trades that weren't um, in existence at the time the statute of 1563 was passed um, were not bound by the statute and thus apprenticeship was not obligatory in those trades that didn't exist at the time that the statute was passed. Uh, and this actually weakened this statute and made it inevitable that by the end of the 18th century, early 19th century, it was falling into disuse and it was finally, the main um, uh, parts of the statute were repealed by the Apprentice Act of 1814. It didn't end apprenticeship and you still had apprenticeship in the 19th century. Um, but it later came to be basically apprentices in a firm or factory taken on as young trainees, and this continued into the 20th century. But the old style of apprenticeship 
of a, of a master, of a, an apprentice to a master, learning the trade and then becoming a journeyman, that sort of ceased, broke down and sort of ceased to exist um, in the early 19th century. And indentures were drawn up, the agreement, indentures or articles, depending on the occupation, drawn up between the parents or the guardian of the child and the employer. So indentures or articles are the binding agreement between the parent or guardian and the master. And they set out the length of the apprenticeship, um, the various conditions of employment. Um, in the 17th, 16th and 17th centuries, um, there's usually a lot of um, stipulations as to the behaviour and conduct of the apprentice, um, what he could and could not do, what periods of recreation he might have, the fact that he might be not allowed to um, have much time off or free time, he wouldn't be allowed to gamble and play dice, he wouldn't be allowed to frequent inns and alehouses. Um, these sort of restrictions are typical in the 16th, 17th century, less so in the 18th century, but you could still find restrictions on the behaviour um, to try and shape the moral character of the apprentice. Um, as I say, the apprenticeship could last for a fixed, well, did last for a fixed period, but depending on the trade, it varied. Um, the minimum was usually about three years. Average, uh, the average apprenticeship was about three or four years, but some were uh, for as long as seven years. And in return for a fixed payment by the parent or guardian, the premium, the employer, the master, would teach the apprentice the craft and trade, uh, whatever the occupation was, and would provide food and lodging for the apprentice. And sometimes included in the articles would be um, suits of clothes, a suit of clothing, maybe a, a sort of Sunday best suit and other workaday clothes to wear during, during the day. Um, but that varied depending on the trade and what was actually entered into the, uh, the Articles of Agreement. Now these are private agreements between the, um, the master and the parents of the child. Um, so they, their survival rate is, is rare. It's only um, where they've survived through the family and passed down through the family or a copy was made and retained by a third party. So um, apprenticeships arranged by charities or by um, parish authorities, a, a parochial apprenticeship, a copy might have been kept by the charity or by the, the parish and kept in the parish records. Um, copies of apprenticeships in boroughs and cities where there's a corporation, um, copies of those indentures might be lodged with the corporation, with the town clerk, and be a copy deposited in the corporation records. So in cities and boroughs, copies might survive of these private arrangements between the parents of the, uh, the child and the master. Um, but in many cases, it's only if the articles or the indenture has actually survived through the family and been passed down through the family that a copy will survive. Um, the records um, that we hold uh, in the Inland Revenue Series, IR1, are merely registers of um, the duty paid on the premium, um, the sum 
paid for the apprenticeship uh, and the date of the indenture. The actual records haven't survived. We do have a few examples of indentures, and I'll mention that a little later, where copies were supplied to the Board of Trade under the Merchant Shipping Act of 1823, specifically for um, apprentices to the merchant, merchant service. But they're just examples of the uh, indentures. Now, there are some collections, and it's always worth trying county record offices and some other institutions have copies of indentures that have survived. Um, the Guildhall Library has a collection of London indentures for the City of London, um, where records have been deposited by the city guilds and livery companies. Um, and if they haven't deposited records in the Guildhall Library, many of the livery companies have their own records. And if somebody was apprenticed to a liveryman or a freeman of the City of London, there should be records in that livery company's records. And possibly also copies in the Guildhall Library as well. There's also a collection made by a member of the Society of Genealogists, um, which is called after him the Crisp Collection. That's some uh, 1,500 indentures collected in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, a miscellaneous collection which is kept at the Society of Genealogists. And the London Metropolitan Archives has apprenticeship registers of the London Foundling Hospital that used to put out children to um, masters in the City of London and um, in Westminster and Middlesex as well. Um, and those registers are in the London Metropolitan Archives. And county record offices will have copies of um, some parochial records of apprenticeship and apprenticeships uh, by local charities as well. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. Now, there's various legislation which you don't really need to know much about. The main statute is the 1563 Act. Um, the apprenticeship system existed before then and dates, as I say, back into the Middle Ages um, through the merchant guilds and trade guilds of boroughs and cities. Um, and if you're looking for an apprenticeship um, in a borough or city, it's worth looking at corporation records, the surviving records of um, borough and city councils where um, masters may have recorded their apprentices um, in the records of the corporation. Um, the franchise varied from borough and city to borough and city, um, unlike the shires where you basically had a, a franchise of 40 shilling freeholders having the right to vote. The right to vote and the right to stand for election to the corporation varied from borough to borough, from city to city, and depending on the statutes of the corporation, um, different rules and qualifications um, applied. But usually, in many cases, you had to be a freeman or a burgess of the borough or the city um, to stand for election or co-option onto the corporation. So the fact that you've served an apprenticeship and become a qualified freeman or burgess of the city is important. That gives you a right to actually vote for burgesses and also to stand and sit on the corporation of that borough or city. Um, so if you've got a family living in, in, a, in a borough or a city, then it's worth checking corporation records. 
But the main legislation that codified all the earlier legislation was the 1563 Act. And it set out all the trades um, for which apprenticeship um, was required. And um, this legislation, as I say, remained in force until 1814, um, although um, by a legal decision in the 18th century, it was decided that it didn't apply to any new trades. So by the 18th century, with the growth of manufacturing and particularly things like the cotton industry, you don't get apprenticeship. It's broken down, that system. Um, and a legal judgment said that new industries um, that didn't exist at the time of the statute um, weren't required um, to use the apprenticeship system, and the statute didn't apply to new industries not covered and uh, not existing in 1563. Now, on the old poor law, um, the Relief of the Poor Acts of 1597 and 1601, which codified the poor law as the old, the old poor law, um, which continues up to 1834, householders... Um, and parishioners who were ratepayers in parishes were obliged to take poor children of the parish. Um, and this was decided by the parish vestry and the overseers of the poor. So poor children or orphans could actually be um, boarded out and apprenticed to householders. And they were obliged to take them um, if they were refused, um, they would be fined and could be fined substantially. So unless you were particularly wealthy, um, you couldn't refuse to take um, a poor child or an orphan that the overseers or the um, church wardens in the vestry decided um, you should take in. Um, sometimes this was done by lot, sometimes it was done by what was called house row, um, which also exists for existed in some parishes for holding the, the offices of overseer of the poor uh, and sometimes the uh, surveyor of the highways and the parish constable. So all the householders in a particular street or in a particular order would be on a list and they would go, they would take it in turns to hold parish offices and also maybe to, um, to take a child as an apprentice. This didn't necessarily mean in parishes, though, that children were apprenticed necessarily to a trade or occupation. They might be apprenticed to a carpenter or a shoemaker or to a butcher, but in many cases they might finish up just as household servants. So the apprenticeship might be to housewifery, so that basically a girl would be a, a female household servant and she would just basically learn domestic service until she was of an age to sort of marry. Um, boys would be put out, and they would basically become farm servants or labourers, and they wouldn't actually learn a, a, a skill or a trade as defined by the statute of apprentices. Um, they would just learn a basic, um, a basic skill from their employee. Sometimes rich um, Householders or farmers, tenant farmers or the landowners in the parish, if they had to take um, a parochial apprentice, they might actually give them to one of their tenants. So they might palm off a poor child to their, their, their sub-tenant and that, that tenant would have to, to actually teach the child to be a farm labourer or, or maybe some skill, maybe may a blacksmith or a, or a carpenter if they were lucky. 
Um, there was an act in 1547 um, that allowed for apprenticeship indentures to be cancelled if a master badly treated uh, an apprentice. This was not uncommon, um, and I'll say a little bit more about this later, um, because you can um, look for details of um, legal disputes and legal cases and cases where apprentices absconded or ran away, often usually because of ill treatment. Um, and sometimes this might be decided by the courts. But from 1547, um, apprentices' indentures could be ca cancelled um, if a master was found to be ill-using, um, abusing or beating an apprentice. Um, but in, in many cases, this would actually come to a court case in quarter sessions or assizes. Um, before an apprenticeship was cancelled, unless the apprentice took it into their own hands to abscond and run away. Um, but that carried the risk, that was also a crime, so you were likely to put yourself into, uh, into the wrong if you actually deserted a bad master. Um, another act in 1567 reduced the, um, the upper age limit from 24 to 21, but originally just in, in London, in the city, and that was extended um, to the rest of the country in 1778. Um, so it reduced the, uh, the upper age limit for apprenticeship. And in 1592, uh, a further act um, said that if a master died, then the indentures would normally be cancelled. Um, this often happened before 1792. Um, if the master died, um, it was usually um, included in the actual agreement, in the indentures itself, um, that if the master died during the course of the apprenticeship, then the parents or guardian of the child would actually get some of the premium back. Um, usually about 70 or 80% of the premium in the first year, maybe 50% in the second year, maybe 25, 30% in the third year, depending on the length of the apprenticeship and um, how much was still to run. Um, but usually, if the master died, you could normally negotiate a new apprenticeship with another master to cover the period of the apprenticeship um, that was yet to run. Um, it might sometimes cost more money to do this, um, but at least it wouldn't mean that the period that the, the apprentice had served wouldn't be wasted. But sometimes they would have to negotiate a whole new um, apprenticeship with a new master. What more often happened was that um, if the master's trade was continued by his wife, um, and widows often carried on their husband's business, um, the apprenticeship could continue under the master's wife or widow, and she would actually become the master uh, to, of the apprentice. Um, sometimes, if the master had a son that was qualified and could inherit the business and take over as master, then the apprenticeship could continue under the master's son. Um, but if the master died and there was nobody else and the business um, ceased, then unless you could negotiate um, switching to another master um, and continuing the, the apprenticeship, then you might have to completely start again and negotiate a whole new period of apprenticeship. Um, but usually it could be continued somehow in some way. 
And another act in 1802 required the overseers of the poor to keep a register of parish apprentices. Um, now, the actual, the earlier acts of 1747 and 1778 had said that the overseers in each parish should keep a register of the parish apprentices. But like many um, uh, requirements in legislation in the 18th century and before, um, certain requirements and stipulations were ignored or weren't enforced. And it's very rare that registers of parish apprentices survive. Some do, and those that do usually survive from 1802 under the 1802 Act, and a few survive for odd parishes. And it's worth checking in county record offices to see if anything has survived um, for a particular parish uh, in, in the county record office. But they are very rare, actual registers of apprentices. Now, the records that we have are apprenticeship books, but they're registers of the um, duty payable on the indentures. They're in an Inland Revenue series, IR1. Um, they're originally actually the Board of Stamps records, the Stamp Office records, which were taken over by the Inland Revenue when the Inland Revenue was created in 1849. Um, a Stamp Act passed in 1710 uh, required duty to be payable on indentures. Um, so a series of registers, starting in 1710, record the payments of the uh, duty payable on the indentures. The duty was actually payable on the, the, the premium. So the more the premium was, the higher the duty. And the surviving records are in the registers in IR1. And the books cover from 1710 to 1811. The duty was actually abolished in 1804. But because the duty could be paid either at the start of the apprenticeship or during the apprenticeship, or any time up to a year after the apprenticeship finished, um, there are still payments coming in after 1804, um, up to 1811, uh, when the final um, duties were, were payable. Um, so if you're looking for uh, an entry on indentures in these registers, you have to bear in mind first how long would the apprenticeship have lasted for the particular trade or profession, and then you have to bear in mind that the duty could have pay, been paid up to a year after the apprenticeship finished. So if it's a three-year apprenticeship, you need to search a four-year period. Five years, six, seven-year apprenticeship, search an eight-year period. You also have to bear in mind that um, there's no actual set age e either for a particular trade when somebody should be apprenticed to it. Um, so you could get apprenticeships as young as seven or eight. You're more likely to get apprenticeships about the ages of 11, 12, 14. Um, it did vary from trade to trade, but there wasn't any hard and fast rule even within a particular trade. Um, so they could take on slightly older apprentices if necessary, um, uh, depending on whether they needed apprentices or depending on how much the parents or guardian of the child might be prepared to pay. They might have to pay a bit extra to persuade a master to actually take on their child as an apprentice. Now, the registers that we've got are called um, country or city registers. The city registers are duty paid in London 
but it doesn't just include um, uh, uh, indentures of apprentices, apprentice to masters in the city of London. It also covers the, the home counties as well. Um, so people could come in from Hertfordshire, Essex, even further afield, Hampshire, and come into London and pay the duty in London. If they paid it in London, then it'll be in the city registers, the London registers. If they didn't pay it in London, then it'll be in the country registers. Uh, and the country registers cover the whole of the country. They include Scotland as well. And duty was paid um, in the um, stamp offices, um, which some of which were in the county towns, um, but not every county town did have a stamp office. Um, so the regions covered by each stamp office do vary and will cover several counties. Um, and sometimes it's a bit tricky to work out if you've got a family in Northamptonshire, which stamp office um, the duty would have been paid at. Um, but it's not impossible to work out, um, and you, um, you need to check in the register under that stamp office where the duty was paid for the entries for the apprenticeships in that area. Now, the registers up until 1752 will give you the names of the parents, but after 1752, um, they hardly ever do. You get the name of the apprentice, um, the name of the master, his residence, usually just his town or parish, his trade or occupation, the date of the indenture and the period of service, the period the uh, apprenticeship is going to last, the premium, which isn't always the premium that was actually paid, it's a notional amount uh, for the occupation, and then the amount of the duty play paid and the date of the registration when the duty was actually paid at the particular stamp office. And the duty didn't vary, it was sixpence in the pound uh, for premiums up to £50, and then for every additional pound above that, a shilling and the registers record the amounts and then the duty payable. Sometimes a charity or the overseers of the poor or the church wardens might actually help out the family um, to pay the duty. Where that's the case, it's normally annotated uh, in the registers and you get two amounts and you can see um, that it was partially, uh, the duty was partially paid by a charity or by the, uh, by the uh, parish officers, in which case it's worth looking to see if the records of that charity or the records of the parish uh, survive the vestry books, um, the overseer's accounts, uh, and there might be some record of the apprenticeship in those. What the registers don't cover are those apprenticeships made by the church wardens and overseers solely by the parish. So poor children and orphans that were apprenticed within the parish by the parish officers, those apprenticeship indentures were exempt from duty, so they don't appear in these registers. So these registers are not comprehensive. They don't cover all apprenticeships. Not everybody was apprenticed, and not everybody's apprenticeship where they were apprenticed uh, was liable for duty and it's only the ones that are liable for duty that appear in these registers. So charitable ones and parochial ones won't appear in these registers. Um, you only get um, notes of um, parishes and charities if they paid part of the indenture 
um, and the rest was paid by the, by the family, by the parents or guardian. This is a, uh, one side of a register. Um, this is the left-hand side of the register, and it shows the date of the, um, the duty was paid, the name of the master and his residence, again, just his town or his parish, um, his occupation, and the name of the apprentice. Um, on the other side of the page, which isn't illustrated here, you actually get the date of the actual indenture itself, the amount of the premium, and then the amount of duty paid on the premium. And as I say, these registers, this example here actually covers um, collections um, by a Scottish um, stamp officer uh, for Scotland. So most of these are Edinburgh and Scottish towns and parishes um, in 1781 and the, um, the amounts collected on the indentures in his region. Now the indexes to apprentices and masters, um, they don't survive for the whole period. Um, they haven't all been indexed up to 1811, but the earlier records of apprentices from 1710 to 1774 um, have been, and the masters as well. And the indexes are on microfiche in the open reading room, and they give you the basic details and a two-part reference. There are also copies of the indexes um, at the Society of Genealogists and the Guildhall Library. Um, the registers were originally kept by the stamp office and then when the Inland Revenue was created in 1849, um, the Inland Revenue had offices um, and may still do at Somerset House. And the records, these registers, were originally deposited at Somerset House. Um, and they were actually still there until about 1922, I think. And someone at the Society of Genealogists actually wrote and said that these records were very valuable to family historians and should be made more widely available. Um, and that prompted the Inland Revenue to actually transfer the records to the then public record office at Chancery Lane. Um, but the Society of Genealogists thought they were worthwhile to index, and the indexes were actually created by the Society of Genealogists in the 1920s. Um, when the records were transferred from Somerset House to the Public Record Office. So the Society of Genealogists has got copies of the indexes. In fact, we used to have copies of their indexes. Um, these are now on fiche in the, in the open reading room. And they cover from 1710 to 1774. After that date, unfortunately, you have to search year by year uh, from 1774 onwards. Um, for the apprentices. There are a few later indexes for the masters to 1783, and there are separate indexes in IR1, 76, 77. And there's a few partial indexes, which are not complete, but they're worth searching. If you're looking for a master between 1793 and 1802, and those are in IR1, 36, and 38. Um, but the fiche indexes up to 1774 will give you basically a two-part reference, which is the volume, the register number, and the um, folio number in the volume. And the volume numbers correspond to the piece numbers in IR1. So the indexes are on microfiche, and the actual registers are on film um, in the cabinets in the open reading room. Now, as I say, not all apprenticeships are recorded in the registers. 
Um, apprenticeships by charitable institutions or parochial apprenticeships are exempt from duty, so they're not recorded in the registers. Only sometimes where they helped out to pay the premium, that would be recorded and noted in the registers. But details of the records might survive with the charity. Um, many of these charities were local, um, either parish charities created by will, by benefactors who left money in their will to, f to form a parochial charity, um, or it might be a charitable um, society um, created or managed by a corporation in a town or a city, in a borough or a city. Um, where the records may survive, and it's worth searching those records for details of charitable apprenticeships. And where you've got orphans and poor children, they're more likely to be apprenticed in parishes, outside towns and boroughs, um, by the church wardens and the overseers. And you should, use, you should consult vestry minutes and overseers' accounts for records of um, parochial apprenticeships. Sometimes also you'll find details in parish registers as well, particularly the early general registers. Um, general registers are where you've got baptisms and burials in a register, either baptism at the front, burials at the back, or a mixture, they're intermingled. And before 1754, before the Lord Hardwick marriage registers, you get marriages included in the general registers as well. Well, those general parish registers were often used for memoranda and notices and, and other transactions. So sometimes you can find details of apprenticeships recorded as a memoranda and it's just been entered in the parish register as a suitable place to record it as a permanent record. Um, but where parish vestry minutes survive and overseers accounts survive, you'll often find details of parochial apprenticeships in those records. So you need to check what survives amongst the parish records in county record offices. This is just an example of a parochial apprenticeship in the parish of Sutton Maddock in Shropshire. Um, there's an example here from the Vestry Minute Book, um, December 1806, of two orphaned children. Um, the Vestry Minute Book actually doesn't say much more than this, just James Booth apprenticed to Thomas Paul and Mary Booth apprenticed to Richard Ray. Um, and although it doesn't say very much more, hardly anything more in the Vestry Minute Book, you can find a little bit more in the overseer's accounts uh, and the fact that James and Mary were brothers and sis brother and sister um, and were often orphaned. And there are actually earlier details of payments to their, their mother before she died. Um, so if you find an entry in... Uh, one surviving type of parish record in the minute books, the vestry minute books, then check other records as well, church wardens' accounts, overseers' accounts. Um, uh, if something doesn't survive in one, one book, it might survive in another. And as I say, even the parish registers sometimes will record memoranda. Later example, again, in the select vestry minutes in 1821, and there was a George Williams apprentice to Mr. Richard Ray, um, who was a member of the vestry. He was a, a, a vestry man. He'd been elected to the select vestry in, in 1819. So he's a member of the vestry, and he's having... Um, uh, uh, I think he's a poor boy in this case. He's not an orphan, being apprenticed to him. Um, and as I say, people were obliged to take apprentices unless they could... Uh, unless they were prepared to pay a fine. 
Um, but in this case, there might have been some behind-the-scenes negotiations, because only a couple of weeks later, at a meeting on the 12th of February, they reversed the decision, and instead of apprenticing George Williams to Richard Ray, he's actually apprenticed to Richard Phillips. So whether Richard Ray had paid a fine or not, um, there's no evidence of that, actually, in the minute books. But whether he'd negotiated as a vestryman with his fellow um, uh, vestrymen to actually um, give the apprentice to somebody else and somebody else had been willing to take the apprentice on, I don't know. Um, but it might be possible to actually research that a little bit further. Um, in some parishes, they actually did make some money and an income out of um, apprenticeships, parochial apprenticeships, and, and the fines that could be levied on people that refused to take apprentices, particularly in a populous parish, which might have a number of paupers, um, poor families where they, they had children to apprentice. Um, you can find records of the, um, the vestry actually making some income from the fines of uh, householders paying not to take on poor children as apprentices. Now, another place that you find details of um, where apprenticeships go wrong, really, uh, are newspapers um, giving advertisements, details of absconded or runaway apprentices, either because of mistreatment or sometimes just because they didn't um, like the trade to which they'd been employed. Um, this was against the law, um, and breaking their indentures, um, so it was an offence, and uh, masters would often advertise to recover absconded or runaway apprentices. Um, you usually get details of the, uh, the individual with a description of them, the clothes that they're wearing when they abscond or run away, and details of their employment uh, and of the, the, the trade that they were following. And it's quite common to find um, advertisements from masters for runaway apprentices, um, I've no idea really how successful masters were actually um, getting their apprentices back. Uh, one suspects that uh, runaway apprentices are going to run away as far away as possible, if not join the army or the navy. Um, then they're going to move into a town, but as far away as possible from their employee, uh, employer. Um, so um, whether... Uh, apprentices were usually caught or not, I'm, I'm not quite sure. But you certainly get lots of advertisements for runaway um, apprentices. You also get legal disputes and cases at quarter sessions and sometimes at assizes, and as I'm going to show you in a minute, um, in chancery as well. Sometimes legal cases are where apprentices have run away and have been recaptured, or where a master has been taken to court for cruelty and mistreatment um, of his apprentice. Um, but you can also get legal disputes over the terms of the indenture. If one party, the parent, has felt that the master isn't fulfilling the terms of the indenture agreement, um, Sometimes it can be petty about the amount of food that the apprentice is receiving or the amount of time off uh, or 
he hasn't got the suit of clothes that he was prom promised in the agreement. Um, they can be what may seem to us like petty um, petty quibbles, but in those days where, you know, a suit of clothes was very important and a set of working clothes and a spare suit for Sunday best was, was important, if you, if you didn't get one and you'd been promised one, then, you know, you would feel aggrieved and you would take the master um, to court. Um, so you get many cases of dispute over the terms of indentures. Um, so it's always worth searching for these in newspapers as well. And there's a number of resources that you can now use. We've got some sources on our online electronic um, publications. Um, but it's also worth searching local uh, county record office collections of newspapers. But there's two British Library collections, the 17th and 18th century Burnie collection of newspapers and a collection of 19th century British Library newspapers as well. Those include some national, but also regional and local um, newspaper collections as well. Uh, and we've also got the Times newspaper online uh, from 1785. All these you can actually search on Opera. Um, so you can search under name of individual, you can do a name search, you can search under name of individual and apprentice and see if that would bring anything up. The Burnie collection also includes various pamphlets and proclamations and, and news books, um, many of which were published in London, but it does have some provincial ones as well. Um, there are, for example, things like Barrow's Worcester Journal and um, Jackson's Oxford Journal. Um, then you've got the 19th century British Library newspaper collection. That's got 48 national uh, and also regional and local newspapers. Um, and they're very useful for searching for names of individuals. You can search by name of ancestor. You can search by parish. You can search by things like apprenticeship. Um, and just see what, what comes up. You might not get a specific ancestor, but there's an awful lot of useful information in these databases that is worth now searching for, and it's, it's easy to do. Other apprenticeship records that we've got. I mentioned merchant seamen, and we've got some registers of apprentices in the Merchant Navy, the Merchant Marine, under the Merchant Shipping Act of 1823. And there are a set of registers that run from 1824 to 1953. And they're more or less complete. So anybody that entered the Merchant Navy as an apprentice and served an apprenticeship in the Merchant Navy and then spent their sort of working life in the na Navy, you're quite likely to find in these registers, BT-150. I think most of these now are on microfilm in the microfilm reading room. A few of them may be originals, which you would need to order up, but I think most of these are now available on microfilm in the open reading room. Now, as well as the registers, we have a few sample indentures, but only a few where the actual indenture, a copy was made and a copy was sent to the Board of Trade. And we only have a random sample every five years from 1845 up to 1960, I think, and then we've got 1962 for some reason. Um, unfortunately, even with the yearly samples, we don't have all the indentures for that year. What we have is a sample of the yearly sample. 
Um, so we get perhaps two or three months, perhaps a quarter of the year, the indentures for London, and then we might have a quarter of three months or maybe two months of the indentures of one of the, uh, of the outports and a selection of all the outports. Um, so even if we've got the year that your ancestor was apprenticed in the merchant navy, we still might not have the original indenture, I'm afraid. It is only a sample within that sample of years. Um, but if we've got the year, then it's worth looking, and they're in BT 151. Um, some are just London only, some are London and outports, and some are just the outports, which are all the ports outside London. And again, they cover the whole country, and I think these actually cover Ireland as well. And there's also uh, another sample of indentures for the fishing fleet. Again, it's incomplete, and it's only a representative sample in BT 152, and that starts in 1895, just up to 1935. But if you've got any fishing um, ancestors that were fishermen, then um, uh, it's just possible you might be lucky and find something in there. This is an example of the register of apprentices in BT 150. This is one that covers the outports. Um, the registers are only approximate dates, and they slightly overlap some of the registers. This one's from circa 1828 to 1836, and this page is 1833. Um, gives you the name, well, it gives you the port of registry of the ship to which they're going to be apprenticed or serve on. Um, the date of the indenture, so I think these are April 1833, the name of the apprentice, their age, um, and the period of apprenticeship, I think it is. Uh, then the name and um, uh, it should give you the residence, but it doesn't always, uh, of the master. I think in some cases, because it gives you the registry, the port of registry, you, if it doesn't give you the residence, then you can normally take it that he's likely to be living in that port. Um, they don't always put the port, but you get the name of the master, and then you get the name of the ship. Um, and it's usually that he is the master, the captain of the ship. But sometimes you get examples where it's a ship owner. Um, and he's apprenticed to the ship owner and allocated to a ship in that, in that ship owner's fleet. Um, but in most cases, these are masters of the vessels. So you get the name of the vessel in, the, in the right, this right-hand column and the name of the registry for that ship in the first column on the left. But these are more or less complete from 1824 up to 1953. So if you've got an ancestor in the merchant's service, then these are well worth searching. Now I mentioned legal cases and disputes. As I say, you can get disputes over the terms of the indenture. Um, these might be heard at quarter sessions, or you might get cases actually uh, heard <coughs> in the central law courts, but in particular in the Court of Chancery. Um, if they're disputes over an indenture, then they're usually civil disputes. They're not criminal disputes. It's not a criminal case. Um, it's just a civil property dispute, really. Um, so there are cases in Chancery, and it's worth doing a name search of the Chancery records, um, most of which are now searchable on the online catalogue. Um, but if you're interested in pursuing this, 
get the leaflet on um, chancery cases and it'll tell you which series are searchable on the catalogue and which have um, finding aids you need to consult in the reading rooms. So yeah, legal disputes, uh, again, absconding or desertion by the apprentice, um, this is actually an offence, a criminal offence. So that's more likely to be heard at quarter sessions or even possibly at the assizes. Um, cases of cruelty or mistreatment um, by the master, again, are going to be heard at quarter sessions or assizes. The thing to do is to consult the calendars of quarter sessions. Um, they're not easily searchable. Most quarter sessions records, they're in county record offices. They do sometimes have indexes, um, depending on the county. Um, you need to check with the relevant county record office whether their quarter sessions records are searchable online or not, or if they have paper indexes. If you're lucky, they'll have paper indexes. Very few uh, um, county record offices have actually put their quarter sessions online. Um, if there aren't any indexes, then again, if you know when somebody might have been serving an apprenticeship, you need to check the minute books and the registers of the quarter sessions, which are the um, minute books and registers of the magistrates sitting at quarter sessions and the business that they were going to hear um, at each of the sessions year by year. Similarly for the assizes, calendars of assizes, the business heard at the assizes, and the crown and jail books, which again you can use like the minute books and registers for the quarter sessions as indexes of, or uh, lists of the cases being heard at the assizes. And again, for criminal cases and civil cases, you can also search the, uh, the databases on, for the online newspapers. This is our online catalogue, and it um, just gives you a reference. I just did a, a basic search, not even by name, just under apprenticeship to see what would come up, and restricted it to C for chancery, and I got 172 results. Um, it's worth checking, again, by name of individual. You might not actually find, because not all the chancery records have been catalogued in such detail, so you still get examples, particularly of, of chancery pleadings, where you just get the name of the plaintiff and the defendant, and you don't get any idea from the catalogue what the case is about. Um, in time, the catalogue's being improved, so in time it'll be better and easier to search. Um, but you won't necessarily find um, things coming up specifically about apprenticeship. But if you find the name in the pleadings or some chancery case, um, then it's worth ordering them up and seeing what it's about. But you do get examples of cases in the Court of Chancery relating to apprenticeship, usually about something to do with the, um, with the indenture, something wrong with it, or some service that was stipulated in the indenture that hasn't been complied with. These are the National Archives guide. There's the main research guide, Domestic Records Information 80, uh, Apprentice Records as a Source for Genealogy. Uh, and then there's also the little how-to leaflets, um, which will help you use the apprenticeship registers in IR1, how to find an apprentice, and how to find a master. That's basically it, ladies and gentlemen. This event was recorded live on the 23rd of June, 2009, at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>